talking about what it means to abide in Christ as we've reached uh, John 15 and talked about abiding in His love. Last week we talked about abiding in prayer. And this week we come to abide in His Word. We're in John chapter 15. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, and they're thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning to your word. We come to hear you speak. We come to hear your voice. We long for your word to abide in us in truth and in power. Not just to know it and gather an education. But Father, we long to be transformed and conformed to the image of your son. Through the power of your word. So in these moments... Open our eyes that we may see, soften our hearts that we may receive, and raise us up that we might live. For we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 24, it's there in your bulletin. The author says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man who was lacking in sense. And behold, it was overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. I distinctly remember reading those words sometime in the end of college or right after college in a time when I'd been a Christian long enough to to see that this metaphor for the spiritual life was me. I remember reading it and having this overwhelming sense that this is me, that I've grown spiritually lazy that I'm the sluggard, that I lack sense in the priorities of my life, and that that my vineyard has become overgrown with thorns, and it was covered with nettles. It was not as it should be. The walls were down. My soul is overgrown, and God awakened in me. As I, as I read this text, I remembered the, 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 the overwhelming sense of God awakening me a desire for spiritual help for walls that were strong and built up for a a spiritual garden, for the center of my life and my soul to be in order, for the weeds to be pulled out, you know, for, you know, there was this, this overwhelming desire that God awakened in me, a conviction not to be that sluggard, to, to rise up, to look to my soul, to weed, to water, to plant, to build new walls, to read and to pray and to fight that fight and to see God do those things. 
Romans chapter 6, it's there in your bulletin. Paul writes, for sin will have no dominion over you. In the NIV it says, sin shall not be your master. Thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin, but you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which was committed to you. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I remember reading those verses early in my Christian life and being floored with them. I remember my heart rising up in in a sense of, in some ways, unbelief and belief and joy. Is this true? Sin will not be my master. That I used to be a slave to sin, but now I'm a servant of righteousness. And not only did he awaken me just that sense of of confidence and hope, but of, of desire and passion for that to be true of me. I wanted to be a servant of righteousness. So I began to believe beyond hope that sin would not be my master. That Christ would be my master, a servant of righteousness. Ephesians 5.25, it says there in your bulletin, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I have to be careful because my wife's in the room. My wife will tell you that I don't do this very well sometimes. But nonetheless, this vision owns me. There was a day reading the scripture and hearing it preached that God spoke those words to my soul. Love your wife as I love my church. And I gave myself up for her. There was a day that I wanted that to be me. I wanted to be that guy. I don't always do it very well. But it owns me. It owns my imagination. That's what I want. You know, I can go through and do this all morning with dozens of passages. How God has spoken to me in his word. And I, you know, picked out a few and as I'm going, they just come flooding in. Things I would, would say here. Just how God spoke this to me and captured me with it. It wasn't in seminary. I learned a lot of things in seminary. But these kind of moments didn't come there. These are moments of just me reading my Bible prayerfully with God day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, just plodding along, seeking God in His Word and God speaking to me and speaking into my life with with power to change me, to shape me. Personal time like Mary at the feet of Jesus, listening. Word of God and a prayerful response as He awakens us. And friends, if you want a deeper and stronger and richer relationship with Christ, then I believe that we have to get serious about the Word of God and prayer. Because I believe with all of my heart right, that this is where that work is done. Right, as we, as we hear God speak to us and we feed on His Word day by day to shape our souls in the image of Christ, it is formative, it is powerful. Right, our spiritual lives are as deep and strong as we are deep and strong in the Word of God and in prayer. Because apart from Him, we can do nothing. 
But as we abide in him and in his word and in prayer, we are transformed. We bear much fruit. We are like Christ as we are with Christ. I'm not, you know, we're not just saying prayers, but we're engaging with God. And we're not just reading the Bible, but we're hearing God speak to us. Deuteronomy 8, there in your bulletin, it says that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He compares it to food, right, that we can't live without. Like we can't live without a daily meal. The word of God spoken to the soul brings health. It brings life. It brings wisdom. It brings strength. It brings maturity. It brings change. It brings growth. It brings Christ-likeness. The word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and revealing the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Revealing us before the one with whom we have to do. Jesus says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you. It's an interesting turn of phrase. For his words to abide in us. He already says he, you know, we should abide in him and he in us. And not only he in us, but for him to abide in us means his word needs to abide in us. Needs to come and live in us. Needs to come take up residence in some way in us. To remain, dwell, to continue to be in us. You know, and as we abide in word, it creates <clears throat> prayer. I was, I, this rings true to me. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. Right? And as I read those scriptures, as those scriptures come to abide in me, when I read that passage about the, the garden and the sluggard who let it, fall into disrepair and how it got overgrown and walls were broken down that should be up. You know, and I, you know, it, it becomes, what is it? it is, is I am awakened that that's me and that's the desire is, it, it, it is prayer, isn't it? God, come near. I want, you know, help me be re rebuild the walls. You know, God, help me to pull these things out. And as he shows us, what are the weeds that need to go, that need to be pulled? What are the graces that need to be planted? You know, where is there harshness that there needs to be gentleness? You know, where is there impatience where there needs to be gracious? <clears throat> Excuse me, gracious patience. What are the things that need to happen? And those are the things that it turns to prayer. Sin shall not be your master. You used to be slaves to sin, but now you're slaves to righteousness. Father, I want to be that guy. Father, I want to be free from my sin. Deliver me from this and deliver me from that and Cleanse me from all unrighteousness and help me to be a servant of sin. What does that look like to be your servant in your church and in my marriage and in my work and in my, right? They're prayers. How can the word, of, how can the word abide in you and it not be the kind of prayer that rises up that God delights to answer? If we pray anything according to his will, we're told, he hears us. And when his word abides in us and it's prayer, it's his will and, it, and, and he hears us. The word awakens us and abides in us. It awakens prayer. What does it mean for us to dwell, for, for the word of God to dwell in us, for his words to abide in us? I'm going to suggest four things biblically. I'm going to walk through them. <coughs> Excuse me. And those are, that's going to be the rest here. That we would hear his word. 
that we would receive his word, that we would love his word, and that we would obey his word, right? That we would hear his word. To hear his word, we have to be in it. In some senses, you have to be here to sit under its teaching, you know, but not only that, but day by day, you know, we need to be, we need to be in it. You know, and I've said that before, I, you know, to steal a secular phrase, but you got to be in it to win it, right? And in a sense, you got you to be in it to, to hear that voice. And, you know, is it the same? Does he speak the scripture into my life that way every single time I open the word and every single time I'm obedient and do, you know, and go to spend time with him? You know, it's not. No, it's not. But I'll tell you along the way, as you are in, as you seek that presence day after day and week after week, there are time after time that he will meet you there and he will speak to you there. And he will begin to do that work in you there that only he can do. We sit under. We need to be, we need to sit under its teaching and its preaching. We need to be in it to grow in the knowledge of it. You know, it's interesting in verse 15 that Jesus says a significant part of being his friend is this word that he speaks to us. Right in 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants. A servant doesn't know what his master's doing. I've called you my friends. What does that mean, Jesus? He says, For all that I have heard from my Father, I have been making known to you. That's at the heart of what it means to be a friend of Jesus. We need to sit for a minute and just let the significance of that sink in. All that the Father, you know, has been telling to me, the the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Almighty Creator, a Maker of all things, He sent Christ here on a mission of salvation. This, This Father, all of His words, He says, Jesus says, I've been making known to you because you're my friends. And you need to know the Master's business. You need to know the master's mind. You're not just his servants, right? You are friends. Jesus says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, given you my word again and again. I've been speaking these things to you. Why, Jesus? Why are you telling them these things? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right? Jesus says, if you want my joy, you need to have my word. Right? Isn't that what he's saying there? I've been speaking these things to you so that with these words, as you understand them, as my word abides in you, as it comes to own you, and you own it in that sense, as my word abides in you, he says, I want you to have my words. I'm speaking them to you so that your joy will be like my joy. My joy will be in you, and your joy will be complete. If you want my joy, you need to have my word. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 tells us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, the word of Christ. We should not underestimate the power of exposure to God's word. I remember as a college student, I roomed with another guy who was a Christian, and we lived in a suite, you know, that meant three rooms and emptied on a common area, our suite. And we had suite mates. There was a pair of roommates that lived next door to us who were not believers. And, and it was, you know, a year-long relationship where you share the bathroom and you share the living room and you guys live. And we had conversations and all kinds of conversations. We were leaders in InterVarsity and a college fellowship. 
And uh, so we would have conversations with these guys all the time. And I remember how the, the relationship turned at one point because we would have these conversations. And I would say, well, the Bible says that I would, you know, give. And, and he would say, I don't believe in the Bible and all that stuff. And so we would have these conversations. We'd have another conversation. I'd say, well, the Bible says. And I'd throw it in there anyway. It would come in there. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, and it sticks with me, and I, you know, all the details. But I remember the day when it turned. We were having a conversation. And he said, what does the Bible say? Glad you asked. Because been dying to tell you but it was, it's that movement where the word he you know hearing comes faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God one of those two guys came to Christ and walks with him today one of those guys didn't come to Christ but faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God as it comes and the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who will believe but not only does faith come by the hearing of the word it's not only the door in it's it's the way forward Faith keeps on coming by the word of God. Daily coming by the word of God. In other words, our faith is nurtured and watered and strengthened and it grows and is revived as we are in the word. Faith comes by hearing. Strong faith, mature faith, growing faith, strengthened faith comes by hearing God's word. We not only need to hear his word, but we need to receive his word. And, and a lot of us have heard that distinction or made that distinction between hearing and listening. You know, I heard you, but I wasn't listening. That happens in my house all the time. In fact, I'll tell my wife, I, I heard you, but, I, I, you know, I was still focused over here. Can you repeat that? You know, I heard you, but I wasn't listening. Hearing is, you know, that we perceive noise, you know, out there with our ears. But listening is a very conscious and deliberate act of attention, of concentration, of, you know, there's, there can be some work involved to, to listen. To achieve understanding, we have to think. The Bible calls that kind of thinking meditation. Meditation is one of those words that Christians, I mean, it's a word. You'd be surprised how often the Bible uses it uses it and, and commands it on us, to us. But it's one of those words that we tend to be, I don't know, I don't, it makes us nervous, you know, meditation. I don't know whether we think of Eastern mysticism or it sounds like hard work or it just sounds like something, something over there that some, you know, really spiritual people engage in. But I, meditation, you need to think of it this way. Meditation is thinking. I usually think of it as either prayerful thinking or thinking in the presence of God, which is prayerful thinking, but it's, but it's, it's thinking. It's a lost art in our culture. We live life like we change channels, right? You know, that was done right now to channel 13. You know, next, you know, every half hour, just something starts, but we don't think about it. Let the word of Christ, Colossians 3 tells us, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and when you do, your heart will literally sing. And we will, and we will be speaking the word to one another. It will become the language we speak to each other. Right? It will become our language. It will, it will saturate our communication, and our hearts will sing. 
when it dwells in us richly, when it abides in us. When the Word of God gets inside of us, it goes at some point from being out there to being... You know, and you know that moment when that happens. And you can think of scriptures where they, they've gone from being out there to being in here. And that word owns you and you own that word. Biblical metaphor is to eat it. <laughs> to eat God's word, right? That's what the, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. As if he compares it to food, to bread, to be something to be consumed. Which gives us an image for that internalizing of it, doesn't it? Jeremiah 15, it's there in your bulletin. I know Jeremiah was a prophet, and there are some ways that this applies to him as a prophet. But it's completely consistent with the teaching about God's word and its importance in our lives and the way that we too consume and, and have that word abide in us. Jeremiah says, your words were found, and I ate. And your words became to me a joy and a delight in my heart. It went from being out there to being in here. And in here is that, as Jesus says, these words I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, it became a joy and the delight of my heart. It changed me. It awakened me. It filled me with experiences and feelings and thoughts that I would never have apart from the presence and power of God in his work, in his word. He chewed it with his mind. He molded it over, right? That's what he says when I ate them. He did more than he just heard them, right? It's got to go beyond you just heard them, in one ear and out the other ear, right? Water off a duck's back is a lot of sermons we've heard or other things we've heard. No, he says, when I ate them and they became joy to me, that means I pondered them. I, I chewed them over with my mind. I thought about it, and it seeped in. It, it soaked in. It, it got down in there where, you know, the fruit of it was joy and life and something more. Second Peter 3, it's there in your bulletin. Peter, Peter is writing. It's interesting, Peter and Paul. Paul rebukes Peter at one time in, in public in front of folks, and you know, calls him out, and these guys are two, two of the great apostles of the church, and they're aware of each other's writings in the scripture and what God is doing, and here's Peter writing about Paul, which is funny to me. Our beloved brother Paul also write, wrote to you according to the wisdom that God has given to him, and as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in all of these matters. You know, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. The ignorant and the unstable twist them to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So he says, you know, Paul's writings are scripture. And, uh, and they've come to us along with the other scriptures that are being written at this time. And he says, and some of them are hard to understand. Sometimes it's interesting to me that Christians think that everything ought to come easy or it's not right. You see, and, you know, marriage too, sometimes they have that thing. You know, marriage shouldn't be hard. You shouldn't have to work. I don't, I don't know that that's true. Um, to die to yourself and to love someone else sacrificially is it takes some work takes some prayer it takes some takes a lot and you know all kinds of things that require work that that sometimes we think should be easy in the scripture I hear people say you know it's don't make it so complicated you know or I really don't want to you know that's all you know people get all you know that's all, I understand is a little complicated you know the scripture Peter says he reads Paul, and Peter found Paul hard to understand sometimes. And I'm pretty sure Paul didn't, or Peter didn't just, you know, write him off. 
Right? It, ta- it takes some work sometimes to understand. You've got to soak in it and ponder it and do some work, some, maybe even some research, some cross-referencing, and some, you know, good, I, I often say in the, both in the life of the church and my marriage and everywhere else, you know, communication is hard. Good communication is very hard, right? It takes, it takes some hard work to do it well. Many times Lynn and I labor to understand each other. What are you talking about, woman? She looks at me like I have two heads. <laughs> she looks at me like I have two heads because I don't, I don't think the way she always does or feel the way she does. And she's a, you know, we are alien creatures to each other at times. And we labor to understand each other and appreciate those differences. But, but sometimes that's work. It takes patience and work. How much more, perhaps, than is the word of the God of the creator, God of the universe. Hearing is necessary, but we need to chew and to swallow. We need to pray and to think and to respond and to engage we must receive his word. We also need to love his word. I believe as important as anything else in, 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 as you talk about any of this in the Christian life is your posture toward these things. Your posture that we have to them. We need to love God's word. It will not abide in us. It will not in that sense abide in us until we love it. The posture of our heart must be soft and receptive. I was a religion major in college in a secular university. So I had professors who were brilliant, educated, PhDs, doctors so-and-so, who at least at that time, I don't know at this point, but at least at that time knew the scriptures way better than I did. But their posture toward the scripture was poor. (laughs) They knew it better than me, but they didn't love it better than They didn't love it at all, it didn't seem. They did not receive God's word in the sense that when, as they knew the Bible, they did not put themselves under it. They did not seek to obey it. They did not seek to know the God who was speaking those words. They knew the scripture, but they stood over it. And they repeated with the ancient serpent those words, did God really say? And so they handled it, and they manipulated it, and they knew it, and they understood it, but their posture, they did not love it, or the God who spoke it. You know, you can spray water on the ground. There are places in my yard and even in my garden beds where you can spray water on the ground, and you can watch it pool up and run off. Clay, I don't know. The sun bakes it, and it's like a rock. You know, and that's the way ground can be. And I think this is my professors. You can spray water on them all day long, but it just pools up and runs off. There is a softness and a receptiveness to God's word that by his spirit he gives us. And by his grace we desperately need in order to love his word. Jesus tells a parable just like this about soils. Says there, you know, gives four different kinds of soils. One of them is hard on the path and the seed can't get in it. You know, some is thorny and overgrown. And he says, but he describes, he says, in, in the four soils, there's one good soil. And he said, it received the word and the roots went down deep and it produced a harvest. 
right? It abided in the soil and and a, and a harvest changed. Much fruit was the result. The psalmist, 119 there in your bulletin, oh, how I love your law. The law for Jews was often a summary word. Sometimes it was used specifically of the sections that had commands. Sometimes it was used just of the first five books. But ultimately, as they had all of the Old Testament, the law was the whole business. It was, you know, it was just a way of speaking of, it's another way of saying your work. But it was the law just kind of grew to encompass the whole thing. And so as the psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. I love your word. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, wiser than my teachers, right? It is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. You know, I found that to be true in seminary. Those guys were brilliant and they were educated, but they were not wise. And their lives were as much of a mess. One of them was going through a divorce. One of them was suffering with a parasite because he had drank water out of the Ganges River in some kind of a Hindu ceremony. One of them, I mean, you could go through the list. The guys were a mess. Oh, how I love your law. So I sit under it and I chew on it all day long. And it makes me wiser than my enemies. And I have more understanding than my teachers. It makes me wise and godly. Psalm 1, the gateway into the Psalms. Not an accident that this is the gateway into the entire book of the Psalms. He says, blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in your law. His delight. He loves it. Blessed is the man who loves God's word. Blessed is the woman who delights in his word. And, and you see the connection, the constant connection between loving it and meditating on it, delighting it and meditating on it. And you see just a couple of the scriptures where, again, it says, in other words, I delight in your law, so I think about it, right? I love your word, so I think about it. I ponder it because I don't want it to just run off. I want it to soak in. I want it to awaken me, right? I want it to do something. Changed my life. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commands of the Lord are pure and they enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. There be more desired are they than gold even than much fine or well-refined gold, sweeter also than honey, than drippings of the honeycomb. This guy loves God's word. You hunger and thirst for righteousness? Right? Is his word sweet to the taste? Is it supremely valuable in your eyes? Something to be sought, mined, Soaked in, eaten, chewed, swallowed, digested, lived, lived. That's where we'll end with this. Finally, you have to obey God's word, right? We have to hear it and receive it and love it. And ultimately, all of that, I can tell you now, is worthless. It's been aborted if we do not obey it. 
and live in it. You cannot and you do not abide in God's word until you obey it, until your life is conformed to it. You may think you understand his word, but if your life is not conformed to it, you don't understand it. You don't get it because it would change you. Your life would take that shape. Does not abide in us if we do not do what it says. John 8, we've covered this ages upon ages ago. John 8, Jesus says this, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Just abiding in his word is what makes a true disciple, he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he turns it around from John 15. He says, if my word abides in you. And here in John 8, he's saying, if you abide in my word. And it seems clear to me that this turn of phrase, if you abide in my word, the context of John 8 means if you live in my word in obedience. It's interesting, the conversation that follows, Jesus says this, and there are Pharisees and uh, those who are in the crowd who begin to question him, and an interesting discussion on freedom follows, right? Because he says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so there's an argument about what does it mean to be free? Right? You ever have those, you know, I have those conversations with my sweet mates in college. You know, what, what does it mean to be free? Jesus, in this discussion on freedom, says freedom is to be free from the practice of sin. If you abide in my word, you will be free. Free, uh, as, as Paul was writing, and as a, you used to be a slave of sin, but now you've become servants of righteousness. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. The truth will begin to shape your very being. And it will set you free. Free from sin. Free to serve righteousness. This is so key. If you do not know the truth. If you do not know the truth. Until it has set you free and you're able to live in it. You may know it from the outside, but you don't know it from the inside. Our culture is plagued by a double death in its approach to God's word and to these things. You know, on one hand, we live in a culture that is becoming increasingly and increasingly biblically illiterate. Don't, we, we just don't know our Bibles like we used to. We are, we are feasting on cotton candy. And, you know, in the, in the bread and butter of the Christian life, in, in word and prayer that, used to, that the Christian life used to center around and dwell in us richly and produce that which, which God does, now we tend to feed on cotton candy of the, the culture. We don't have time, you know, to sit down. I, oh, I'd read my Bible if I had time. I'm way too busy watching TV and keeping up with my Netflix shows and, you know, and, and you know, my, keeping my Facebook posts up and making sure the latest thing on Pinterest or making sure, you know, I, I'm very busy. And I can't get to it. And there is this thing where, our, you know, and I, you know, don't hear me, I wrestle with it myself. This fight to keep first things first. Love the Lord my God with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let all these other things get added on or fill in as and first these things are true of me. 
not only is there this growing biblical literacy, on the other hand, there is this amazing thing that goes on in the life of believers that we know the Bible. We know its doctrine. We can quote it. And we can argue the doctrine with you if you would like. We can do all of this, but there's this weird disconnection between what we know and the fact that our lives don't conform to it. We're not obeying it. It's not soaking in and changing us. We, we know a lot. But somehow the knowledge of the stuff that's in the Bible has become disconnected from that relationship with Christ where we are awakened and passionately knock and seek and ask. That I would not be that sluggard in Proverbs, whatever it was, and that I would rebuild the walls and by God's grace seek real health and life and fruitfulness in the center and the garden of my soul. Psalmist says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander. Are you wandering this morning? Let me not wander far from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart. It abides in me so that I might not sin against you. So that my life would be conformed. It's given shape to me. Spent time chewing on it. And it's so deep. The law of God is in his heart. And his steps do not slip. The word of God is living and it's powerful. It's a means of grace. It's the power of God. To make us like Christ. Pray with me. Father in heaven we confess that though we have loved your word with our lips and with our minds has been far from our hearts way too often. Father, our prayer and our desire this morning is that we would not just hear your word, but that we would sit at the feet of Jesus, that we would listen, that you would give us soft and receptive hearts. You would awaken us to the joy that is ours as we hear you speak these things to us and call us to life and to godliness. Come near to us. Speak to us afresh and lead us in the way everlasting. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name.